Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com On Commons People this week... Labour is rocked by a resignation. I think it's better that I go out uh, like this with everyone happy and everyone campaigning for the Labour team. But the Tories aren't faring much better. It's it's such a sort of arrogant, superior point of view. Those poor people in council houses. Of course he should resign. It's a scandal. And Remainers are uniting to try and stop Brexit. This is Unite to Remain. Labour, by their own admission, is not a Remain party. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is the Press Gazette Award-nominated politics journalist, Paul War. Hello Arj, what an intro. Congratulations on your nomination, Paul. Won't win, but you know, it's nice to be up there. We've also got Tory councillor and former special advisor, Laura Round. Hi. Hi, Laura. And the Labour peer, Lord Stuart Wood. Hello. Hi, Stuart. Well, Labour's election campaign has been thoroughly derailed by Deputy Leader Tom Watson's decision to quit the Commons. The leading moderate's decision to quit was described as enormously significant by ex-Labour MP Ian Austin, who incredibly urged voters to back the Tories over Jeremy Corbyn's party. Let's have a listen to him. I'm not going to run at this election. The country faces a big choice. There's only two people who can be Prime Minister on December the 13th, Jeremy Corbyn or Boris Johnson. And I think Jeremy Corbyn is completely unfit to lead our country, completely unfit to lead the Labour Party. And after 34 years of... I joined the Labour Party as a teenager. I worked for the Labour Party. You know, in my 30s, I was a government advisor. In my 40s, I was an MP and a a minister. So it's really come to something when I tell decent, traditional, patriotic Labour voters that they should be voting for Boris Johnson at this election. I can't believe it's come to this, but that's where we are. Paul, how bad is this for Labour? Well, you've got to separate the two things out. I mean, Ian Austin, I think um, you can uh, you can price in, shall we say, given that everyone knows he's not exactly a Corbyn fan and he was already an independent MP. Um, but it is still quite odd, somebody who did work for Gordon Brown, as, as uh, Stuart did, um, actually coming out and saying, vote Tory. It just seems so extreme that it might make a few people sit up and think, well, what's that about? No one really knows who Ian Austin is, of course. Um, But it might make a few voters think, you know, well, what's that all about? Tom Watson is much more significant. uh, You know, the deputy leader of the Labour Party resigning, not just his post as deputy leader, but as an MP on the second day of the general election campaign is quite staggering. Um, And yes, I do buy a bit of the stuff about it being personal, but the timing of it, he, you know, Tom's a cracking fixer he knows these things he know he times things you know to perfection normally so i can't imagine that this was all just a last minute rush um he must have been thinking about it for a long time and maybe it was just the final thing that tipped him over the edge was party conference and john lansman and co trying to literally abolish his role and him thinking well it's going to come at some point it might have been that but it still says a lot about the fact that he clearly doesn't think labor's going to win the general election otherwise why would you give up wanting to be culture secretary for example mm. um so you know 
Yeah, Stuart, you worked with Ian and Tom as yeah. part of Gordon Brown's team. What do you make of this? I think Paul's right. They're two different stories in a way. They might sound the same today, but... I mean, Ian, I remember I worked with Ian at the Treasury when we worked for Gordon Brown. I remember the day he pulled me into his office and said he was going to become MP for Dudley, and he was sort of incredibly emotional about it. It's where he grew up. He did it very, very quietly to become the MP, to become the candidate and then win. And, um, and when he stepped down, well, when he left Labour, I should say, the emotion was there for everyone to see. But Ian, uh, Paul said that Tom knows about timing. Ian knows about timing too. And clearly, today wasn't just a story about the emotion of uh, leaving Labour. It was trying to inflict some damage on Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, which Ian thinks, you know, whether, whether you agree with them or not is your own call, but he thinks that that's the, that's the mission for the moment. I think Tom, I mean, I, I know Tom well, I haven't talked to him about what, what, what he's decided yesterday, but I think that there is a combination of things going on. I'm not sure it does speak to the fact that he thinks that Labour are going to lose. I think that I think Tom was probably looking at either continuing in this rather frustrating position of being opposed to Jeremy but not being able to actually sort of flex your muscle and express it. That, that problem gets worse in government than opposition, by the way. Um, <laughs> but also, um, if Corbyn loses, let's say if Jeremy loses and there's a change of leadership, all these are you know, big ifs, then you know, Tom's probably going to see someone else taking over and then I think he wouldn't be in that position anymore either. So I think all these considerations, together with the, the clear um, you know, grievance he feels about what happened at conference, the botched coup against him, which probably did for his career and for Carrie Murphy's. Looking yeah, that's back, a good point. Um, I think that I think all these things probably added up. Um, but the timing is damaging. There's no doubt about that. And Laura, what's the reaction been like in Tory circles? Well, it's um, Christmas. It's come early. Uh, Christmas come early. Well, yeah, it is. Uh, it is quite staggering to, to see both those stories. I was definitely surprised um, by both. Obviously, I don't know them as well as um, Stuart does. Um, but both very well-respected politicians, I think, across the political divides, across um, Parliament, both both sides of the House. Um, and for the Conservatives, it really obviously is good in the sense that it underlines their messaging that they've been pushing out for ever since Corbyn got um, selected as leader of the Labour Party, that he is incredibly damaging and dangerous to this country and when you actually get people like Ian Austin um, saying that and even going as far as urging people to vote Conservative that is um, as Paul said yeah Christmas come early when it comes to Tom um, see that is as you just said it's a different story it's different circumstances um, but most people know that they disagreed on things I agree with Stuart that I can see it being more frustrating actually being in government and potentially in the cabinet disagreeing um, with for a potential prime minister. Um, but with everyone sort of tipping him off as potential future leader, why not stick around as an MP? And if Corbyn does lose, and rumour is that he might then get pushed out finally, uh, why not? stick around so I mean I, yeah it's it's, it's, it's interesting curious. I, I, I would have thought actually maybe one of Tom's fears in his darker moments might be there were rumours that actually they weren't even going to give him a cabinet post if, if Labour had won uh, and that you know why stick around if for that final humiliation anyway because they're going to chop up his knees as, as deputy leader at some point in the next year and if you're not even going to be in government then 
you know, what's, what is the point? But Tom used to always say that what we shouldn't forget is that when those Labour MPs defected to the independent group at the beginning of this year, and it all seems a long time ago now, but, you know, people like Tom, um, particularly Tom, he led the movement for this future Britain group, a third of the parliamentary party, lots mm. of peers like Stuart. They had this massive meeting in March. Um, Peter Mendelssohn, I remember talking to him after that meeting, said, well, you know, he's come a long way, Tom. Um, obviously remembering the, his role in the, the coup against Tony Blair, or attempted coup. Um, and yet, and, and Peter was saying, well, he's a smart guy. You know, thank God he's sticking around. And he got this sense after that meeting that, the, the ship was being steadied for the moderates or the centrists. Not even that's the wrong word. It's it's the people who are not necessarily lifelong Corbyn supporters. P- people in the soft left um, and you know people on the traditional centre and right were saying, "Look, finally we get this reassurance that no matter what happens, we're here for the long term." And with Tom going, it's actually yeah, of course those people will still be there. Those M- MPs will still be there. Those peers will still be there, but. Who's going to lead that movement now is the big question. I'm not sure. I mean, there may be some people who do step up to the plate, um, but it would be fascinating to see who does that. I think you put your finger on something interesting. That the, the, the I mean, I, I don't call myself a moderate. I don't quite understand what that means. <laughs> but um, but the, the people who are opposed to Corbyn in the Parliamentary Labour Party have always been caught between two strategies. One is the Ian Austin one of, I can't take this anymore. I can't in good conscience stay in this party led by this person. And the other is to kind of organise and form an alternative sort of power centre, as it were. And Tom was the lodestar for that second strategy, right, forming the group, yeah. as you said. And in a way, things had gone well in the last year, if, if you buy that project, which because this group had, as you say, good membership, lots of enthusiasm. It wasn't really directly antagonistic to Corbyn. It was, it was, a, it was a very traditional Labour story of having a kind of a, a, a organising a family like of people a caucus, with a common yeah. view, with a caucus within the party, exactly. The other thing that had gone the way of that group, of course, was the, was the attempts at deselection, none of which have succeeded. I mean, selections of new candidates have been very strongly influenced by the Corbynites and the Momentum yeah. uh, Caucus. But on the whole, the deselection strategy has not gone very well. So things looked like they were going in the direction of, of the Tom Watson strategy. That's what makes this quite surprising, I think. That's what makes me think it's, per, it's much more personal than we all we yeah. all know. It is interesting, but there is a bigger issue. I mean, Tom used to always say, look... People talk about Clause 4 of the Labour Party, but Clause 1 of the Labour Party is the clause to remember. And that's the clause, which is, that to, to, I quote, to organise and maintain a political Labour Party in Parliament mm. and in the country. And Tom used to always say, that Clause 1 is really, really important. Unless we've got MPs, we're nothing. And that's why the PLP matters, and that's why you cannot deride the PLP as being some right-wing Blairite faction that don't matter. We represent millions of Labour voters. Uh, we don't just represent, you know, half a million Labour members. It's 11 million Labour voters, that kind of narrative. And and that's really ultimately what Tom Watson was all about. And as I say, it'll be interesting to see whether anyone thinks they've got the qualities to step into his shoes and ram home that point. The difficulty, I think, is, and Stuart's right, in terms of the selections, you know, the, the, the Corbyn sceptics, if you call them that, have had a pretty good round of, of, of reselections. They've, they show that they can organise really well on the ground. There's life in them yet. But I think the worry would be, with Tom going, over time, if there is, even if there is a Labour government, what happens to those MPs who just think, I'm going to stick it around for another five years? After another five years, will the Parliamentary Party look very different? It might look very, very different. Yeah, does Tom, got, Tom going make 
more MPs follow, take the Ian Austin route, do you think, Stuart? Well, some MPs have said they would, like Jess Phillips, I think, said once she couldn't stay in a party either with Tom Watson left. I, don't, I suspect that, um, you know, circumstances are changing. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, but, I mean, look, I think Paul's right. The Labour Party's going to look quite different after the election. None of us really know how, to be honest. Um, and, you know, I know friends of mine who are, who, who are much stronger opponents of Corbyn and John McDonnell than I am, who who basically think that the um, it, the party is gone for good or for the next decade? I, I just think that's again whatever your view of Corbyn Macdonald and 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 uh, the group around them. I mean the idea. I mean I've, I've been in politics now for 19 years. My God, um, I think things change very quickly. <laughs> on the on the sort of they can spin around within days. You can see it in both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party. And um, I think that elections are one of those moments when things could pivot in all sorts of ways. So it could be actually that the that those people in the Labour Party after the election who want to be this alternative caucus to a Corbynite-centred Labour Party might benefit from leadership which is beyond my generation, the Brownites and the Blairites generation, because it's always been held against the Toms and the Ians that they're basically Tories by other names, which is not which is complete nonsense, by the way. Although I think Ian has made a bit of a mistake in, in saying vote Tory, because mm. it does walk into that caricature yeah. of him, which, by the way, is totally unfair on him. Nevertheless... Um, I do think a sort of a different generation of alternatives to Corbyn might be more healthy in a funny way for that, for that grouping within the PLP in the future. Well, as one Labour staffer said to me last night, Watson's resignation has shifted the focus back onto Corbyn just when things were starting to get hairy for the Tories. Uh, the Tories' election campaign got off to a terrible start with a series of gaffes, including one cabinet minister quitting, another insulting the victims of the Grenfell Tower fire, as well as a fake news media storm. Let's have a listen to Jacob Rees-Mogg suggesting those who burnt to death in the tower block lacked common sense. Tragedy came about because of the cladding, leading to the fire racing up the building, and then was compounded by the stay-put policy. And uh, it seems to me that that is the tragedy of it, that the more one's read over the weekend about the report and about the chances of people surviving, if you just ignore what you're told and leave, you are so much safer. And uh, I, I think if either of us were in a fire, whatever the fire brigade said, we would leave the burning building. It just seems the common sense thing to do. And it is such a tragedy that that didn't happen, but I don't think it's anything to do with race or class. Paul, can we just recap all the gaffes? Reese Mogg, Bridgen, Cairns, the Keir Starmer video, and then talk about how damaging one. I'm glad we're moving on to this. this <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, I mean, I couldn't quite believe it when, when Reese Mogg said what he said on, on LBC, because um, the following day he apologised for what he'd said, and he he basically, without quoting him directly, suggested that if, you know, he, he was in a chummy environment with the LBC presented Nick Ferrari and he would say look you and I Nick you know we we would have walked out we would have you know we would not have listened to this advice and the clear implication was that we know better than those poor folk in in that building and we would you know somehow we know better and yeah he apologized it for the next day I personally I never say this kind of thing because I'm quite you know fair-minded and, and liberal about people making mistakes in their language and shouldn't be hung by it but I genuinely this is one of those occasions where I thought actually he should resign because it's so egregious that assumption that people who've lost their lives, their relatives, the offence cause, it's not just the offence cause, it's just the whole worldview that I know better than people in that situation. And if he genuinely was, as he thinks of himself as a right honourable gentleman, the honourable thing to do would have been to resign. And I'm amazed he's not been forced to resign. Um, 
but anyway, we can part that. Um, Andrew Bidgeon made it much worse by yeah, then, yeah. basically doubling down and saying, yeah, look, we want yeah. smart people to run the country, and uh, he's really smart, and so let's follow him. That was a bit, it was almost noblesse oblige, forelock-tugging nonsense. Yeah. That, you know, these people know better. Um, so it, that, in terms of how it looked for the Tories, although it was terrible, it led the early evening news, and then it was bumped off the 10 o'clock news by... Yeah, Alan Cairns. I mean, the BBC, it was their own story, so of course they were going to run hard with it. But it was a really good story, talking to a rape victim who'd said that effectively this cabinet minister had sided with a guy who'd effectively ruined a rape trial. And again, you know, at least Alan Cairns did the decent thing eventually, you know, the following morning. Um, and, you know, that's to be welcomed, I guess. On top of that, then you get the other whole rows about doctoring videos of Keir Starmer, which is just silly. That's kind of storm and squall you hear in any election right, campaign yeah. they can survive that but it's interesting I talked to a, a former cabinet minister yesterday about all this I said what do you make of all that sort of you know 24 hours of pain and he said well you know we've got wobbly Thursday out of the way early uh, and you know this is a, someone who'd been around a long time and I, I felt like saying you know <laughs> it doesn't happen wobbly Thursdays don't happen anymore you know you're in the 24 hour yeah, Twitter yeah, world yeah. Um, and it just shows how people used to view these things like if it was once a week that'd be fine Laura, wobbly Thursday or a major problem? Well, I mean, firstly, you know, there's no way around it. I mean, I thought it was extraordinary, the comments. You know, I can't sit here defend them. Um, I thought they were really ill-judged and, frankly, showed lack of empathy and and judgment. And, um, you know, it's really distressing, especially for the victims. Um, But, you know, for everyone. (laughs) Want <laughs> to hear it? So, you know, that firstly. So, I mean, the fact that he's apologised uh, was obviously the right thing to do. Um, Bridgen's comments were odd because clearly it wasn't a smart comment. So, I didn't quite. Anyway, um, and um, yeah, Alan Cairns. Um, I've yeah, I've I've known him for a while, and um, I was very surprised to to hear about this. I've always thought he seemed like a, you know, he's man of integrity and. Uh, it's very, you know, disappointing um, start to the campaign. But whether it's a wobbly Thursday, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't really remember the days of um, <laughs> any. You know, I'm still <laughs> I mean, quite young. Um, I don't really know what that means. Well, I don't really know what that means. It's, uh, you know, obviously it's the start of a campaign. Uh, it was before the Conservatives even launched um, their official campaign. You know, I'm no expert in this, but you know, people here. People who are uh, say, you know, people only tune in sort of closer to um, to uh, election day. So I don't know what the impact will be, um, but you know, obviously it's not. <laughs> it's obviously not the start that uh, I'm, I'm sure it's not the start CCHQ would have wanted. But then you know, you come to today and you get a Labour MP saying, actually, well, you should be voting Tory. And Former Labour MP, <laughs> long-standing <laughs> and <laughs> long-standing Labour MP, um, advocating the Conservative Party, um, and you know you have uh, Sajid Javid setting out his plans today and getting loads of coverage, and there's very good and um, welcome policies in that. And you know, at the end of the day, that is what's going to decide. You know, but how we're in a five-week campaign, effectively a six-week campaign, if you include last week, and and that's where a lot of the trouble started with the government. Was was this? You know, Labour hit hard on the NHS, it's not for sale thing, and Trump reared his head, and that was that was in the 
sort of first week of the six weeks overall. Um, and this other cabinet, this cabinet minister said something else to me. He said, yeah, you, you guys, you just don't, you're too young to remember what a s- real snap election looked like. A real snap election was three weeks. We called mm. an election and then we had it in three weeks. This is six weeks. Oh, that would be great. There's a lot of time to make mistakes, a lot more time for both sides, all sides to make mistakes. Which is and what we a, saw in uh, yeah, 2017. And right. it's a question of whether or not actually what the public then latches onto, as in 2017, is the one moment that really, really does shift mm. the dial for the punters. Yes, yeah, true. Could re-smog be one of those moments just because it reinforces yeah. the Labour message that the Tories are out of touch? I mean, I think there's three things about the last couple of days on the Tory campaign. One is the, the number of gaffes and, you know, I think gaff is a slightly polite word for the Jacob Rees-Mogg incident. I, I agree with Paul. I think that, weirdly, I disagree with almost everything Jacob Rees-Mogg says, but there's a civility and a decency about his public uh, profile, which I would have thought would have led him to step down. Yeah. But maybe he's too central to the Brexit issue for that to be a, a contemplatable thing. I don't know. But it anyway, knowing if he offered his resignation. Yeah, that's an actually, interesting question. Anyway, I agree with what we all said on that. So there's obviously been a spate of gaffes, um, some of which are from Boris as well. And then, but then there's a second level, which are gaffes, I think, only really affect outcomes if they speak to some central truth that you think about a party or a, a, a person. And that, in a way, is. The interesting thing about the, the Alan Cairns and the Jacob Rees-Mogg thing, because, as you were saying, they, they speak to a lack of empathy for vulnerable people, victims of terrible things in the Grenfell case and obviously in, in rape as well. That does, I think, speak to a narrative about Tories, which is incredibly important to Labour on the doorstep in getting its base out, probably SNP in Scotland as well. But there's a third thing which Paul alluded to, which is that I'm really surprised that the Tories so far are playing this election on Labour's issues. Whether it comes to Trump, whether it's on the NHS, and this story about Tory candidates being asked not to sign pledges on the NHS. Um, Whether it's spending today, where Sajid Javid is turning on taps in a a small way, whereas John McDonnell's turning them on in a big way. I suspect that's good for Labour overall, because suddenly, if, if you think big spending is okay, then Labour, the quantum of Labour big spending over Tory spending is less of a problem, I think. It's very difficult for the Tories to make that a divisive issue. So on NHS, Trump spending, and then this gaffe issue around lack of empathy, all these things really are Labour turf issues in an election. I'm quite surprised that the Tories have not just inadvertently, but actually deliberately in some of these cases, played on those on, on, on the on And those is terms. that, Stuart, because, I mean, one reason I thought they were doing that and the reason that, part, well, there's two reasons. One is Boris Johnson is inherently a one-nation Tory. You know, Brexit aside, you know, most people think he's pro-investment. He doesn't really have much of a sort of, you know, dry history when it comes to economics. All right, he'll talk... He, he, yesterday at the, at the rally, he said, you know, firm, one-nation, tolerant... Tourism with tax cuts, and it's like the tax cuts are an afterthought. He's got to say it, and it's like if if he had his way, he really wouldn't be cutting taxes. Um, so and that is, I think, the other reason is because he's trying to get those Labour voting people in marginals in the northwest and in the West Midlands. And you know, it's easy to to, to talk about London. It's easy to talk about Scotland and Wales and the southwest. They're real battlegrounds with most marginal seats are in the West Midlands and in the northwest and the northeast and 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 Yorkshire. And that's where they all are. And if if you're trying to attract them, I can imagine he's him saying to himself, right, they're only going to be attracted if I say the things that made Farage popular, which is Farage talked about more investment. Farage talked about nationalisation effectively. I mean, in some ways, you know, he talked about the big 
old-fashioned, you know, levers of state being used to help people. On top of that, he talked about immigration as well and, and Europe, obviously. But Farage had this strategy for attracting those Labour voters um, because he wasn't seen as a Tory. Now, we'll see how that pans out in this election, whether or not it helps Labour a lot, to, you know, or not. But um, I think that's what, really what's driven Johnson to push it, really, and sound and fight it on Labour's turf. It, whether it works is, a, is another question entirely. I agree with Stuart. So there's a lot of residual you know, um, in a lot of those areas, and I'm from one of them, that, you know, there's a, there's a folk memory of uh, Tories that yeah, is and, hard and, to remove. And these ex-Labour voters who are already, you know, having to bite their lips to vote Tory if they see something like Rees Mogg, it might just be enough yeah. to, to make them stay at home or go to the Brexit party, maybe, rather than... I suspect you won't see him again in an entire election campaign. It'd be interesting. The only place you'd see him, I imagine, would be in the southwest or in some sort of Brexit voting area where you'd want to deploy him and and the Tories I mean you sort of touched on it there Boris's one nation credentials but the party's facing an exodus of one nation conservatives and I um, travelled to Dover yesterday to meet the Brexit party candidate down there Ed Hall uh, and even he is sad to see people like Roy Stewart go let's have a little listen to him I think I think what we're going to see in this parliament is quite significant changes and then when we get another five years on if it indeed is five years till the next election we're going to start seeing quite a lot of names that we recognized from this time around re-established and those who were just political animals will disappear those who had real fire and passion i think will come back and um you know uh, some of them i don't agree with um but i have enormous respect for and you know i, I think uh, maybe I'll be feeling the same way in a few weeks' time. You know, if you come at this game and you win, and more importantly, if you lose, and then you come back and you come back fighting, then I think that says a lot about your, your character. So quite a lot of these um, uh, remain conservatives, some of whom I've liked personally over the years. Um, if they come back and they come back and they come back, then I'll start to, they'll start to earn my respect, even though I disagree with what they've been doing over the last That's year. It's really interesting that you'd like to, I guess, you know, it's people like Rory Stewart and David Gork and... Dominic Grieve, maybe or maybe not. Yeah, Dominic. probably not Dominic Grieve. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do find him. I a see, puzzle, what, I but, see uh, what you're getting. But yeah, at, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. Rory is a regular yeah, example. Yeah. Someone I have an enormous amount of respect for. Yeah, yeah. I don't agree with on this issue, um, but you know, I, I think you know if he can lick his wounds and come back, and lick his wounds and come back, I think all that does is increase and increase the respect that, that you have for someone. And one thing that we are so missing in this generation is conviction politicians. Yeah. And you know, and if you can. Uh, you know, it, being a, a, a special advisor or a party official and then getting an easy constituency and going to the House of Commons, that is not a political journey. You know, that's a job. But if you can lose that and then come back, or maybe lose that and then come back because you believe in something, then I think whether you're on the left or the right of the House or the pro-Brexit or the anti-Brexit party of politics, then you earn my respect. Um, Laura, you're a one Nation Tory, are you worried to see this kind of exodus of talent from the party? Well, um, yes. Um, it's well, if anything, it's just um, very sad because um, there is, yeah, there's a lot of talent in the MPs that are standing down. And actually, just sort of looping back to the previous discussion we had around sort of the, the stereotype that Labour likes to labour label on Conservatives around empathy. Um, it's very frustrating to see that stereotype being brought up again now um, because that is not how I recognise my party or the people that I serve in council with or, you know, 
activists every in general i think you know fundamentally if you have an interest in politics it's because you you know it's fair it's fair assessment it's likely because you actually care about making a positive difference to people's lives and you do care and that is definitely what i've seen with mps across the house so i always find that really difficult to swallow and i find that very disappointing about sort of british political discourse in this country um but yeah i mean these mps that are standing down um they are one nation uh, conservatives and uh, you know for some of them it it might well come down to a, a personal you know personal reasons uh, but i know loads who actually said to me well if it was if it was because i was worried about the future of one nation conservatism i wouldn't leave i would sta- you know stay and fight but that's not the reason for them standing down but as a liberal conservative a lot of them are the ones that i you know, think really highly of and um, respect, and it's it is sad. You know, especially I mean, I mean, we all love him, Nicholas Soames, who's my absolute favourite. And you've got Benyon, who's done fantastic things on the environment, um, and the list goes on and on. So it's it's very disappointing. But when you look at many of the candidates, um, there's a lot of One Nation conservatives in those. So you is know, that right? That's interesting. So you're not seeing a kind of Brexit on the list. On the I mean, we've yeah. we yet to find out a lot of people who are being selected. But that does give me hope, and that is, you know, that's what it's going to come down to. I think it's interesting that both parties have got clumps of people who are leaving the party or distancing themselves from the party for different reasons. You, you know, the, the Brexit and Corbyn effects, essentially. Um, and it'd be interesting, you know, imagine a future in which Brexit doesn't dominate politics. It may be beyond our lifetimes, but um, it'd be interesting whether the, the Tory party as was reunites or whether this is a break that won't get, recon- you know, go back to the old framing. Similar in Labour, I think. It's an open question whether, imagine a world in which the Corbyn leadership went and something came in of a more soft left disposition or something, you know, mm-hmm. would, the, would the old band get back together again or would it be, a, are these breaks sort of permanent in, in their effects? So it's interesting, a- this Brexit party candidate I went to see basically said he envisaged Rory Stewart coming back at the next election because Brexit would be done and he would be happy to see him come back and this guy was an ex-Tory as well and, you know, you could see him maybe going back to the Tory. That's what was at stake, though. We keep forgetting this general election. I mean, I had a pop at Sky yesterday and and, um, it seemed to resonate with quite a few people. In all their branding, they're calling this the Brexit election and it's not the Brexit election. It's a general election which happens to be in the context of Brexit but you can't have the governing party decide what broadcaster's line is (laughs) about the reason for it. I mean, look at the 1970s. You know, you call general election for one reason and the punters throw it back for another reason. Or 2017. (laughs) But I think what what we were forgetting is actually you are electing um, a government for five years. So this is why the stakes are incredibly high for all the parties, whether or not I suspect, you know, if Boris Johnson does win, he will indeed pivot to the One Nation Toryism. He'll 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 try and defuse Brexit and get it done really relatively quickly. And yes, of course, it's going to it's going to take years to sort out a trade deal and there'll be bumps in the road. But once we're out, I think he will try and part that whole debate. And and then and then the question is, but if he then the problem for Labour is you will have lost your fourth general election in, in a row. Everyone's forgetting that four general elections you've lost. I mean, I know three of them have been quick succession, but that's four defeats. And then you think, well, and if Boris is, Johnson isn't then moving on to the One Nation Territory, what, how on earth is he going to be defeated at the next election? You're looking at a record fifth defeat. And how will Labour respond to that? Because it goes back to the, the discussion we had earlier. I'm, I tend to... I didn't quite believe this, but I, because 
Stuart's right. Some of the, the, the selections for the Labour MPs next time, you know, they're not, there's not this massive influx of left-wingers. But certainly what does look irreversible is it's a member-led party. And I can't get my head to think of how a member-led party can suddenly have an influx of so-called centrists. Yeah. Um, how's that going to work? And if that never works, if, if, if you don't reclaim the party at every level, and it's just going to be inexorable, I would think, at, at council level, the councillors will be next. They'll be replaced slowly. Um, certainly all the party structures will be changed. And then you're looking at, if there is a fifth electoral defeat, is there any point to the Labour Party and, and will something else happen? Already happening on some councils, of course, yeah. such as my local Haringey. Yeah. Uh, imagine that Boris Johnson wins in some form and, and Brexit happens in some form or it's the first stage of it happens I mean I agree with Paul that actually Boris when he first came in he did quite a lot of liberal immigration stuff that Theresa May had refused to do as Home Secretary and Prime Minister for a decade mm. actually and that yeah. was clearly a pivot whether it's his true nature or whether it's because Tory Lib Dem marginals are <laughs> I think it's probably a bit of both to be honest yeah I mean yeah. I, know, I know his brother quite well and I suspect the Johnsons are quite socially liberal as a family whatever their view on Brexit so there is that. But I think there's a story that's about to become the backdrop for the next five years of our life if this scenario happens. And that's the future of the union. The future of the union is going to be a constant theme, which and the thing I'm really surprised about, mostly for the, about the Conservative Party, but also a bit about the Labour Party, is the disappearance of the pro-unionist voice in politics, in mainstream politics. And I think Tories, a lot of Tories are unionists by instinct, but it's not the sort of thing you go to the barricades for. You just assert it. You don't fight for it. You just say it. And I think the union is now in question as a consequence of Brexit, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and maybe more broadly, Wales will probably catch up over the next five years too, mm. in a way that I think the Conservative Party is totally unprepared for, that Labour is sort of trying to avoid. Uh, and and, and who, are the, who is the custodian of that union? I think that, that's a really interesting question. I think it could really hurt the next government if it's a Conservative government. I, I disagree. I think actually inadvertently it might, it might hurt their unionist credentials. But as we saw with the DUP, when crunch came to the crunch, a lot of the hardline Eurosceptics said they threw the DUP under the bus. They threw the union under the bus, and basically because Brexit was all that mattered. And I think actually, in a strange way, as Cameron accepted, it's, in, it's going to be in an English national Tory party's interest for the union to break up because Labour will never, ever win a majority in, in England. I mean, Blair won it in 97 without needing Scotland, but that, boy, is that unusual. Well, then it's a very different Conservative Party to the one we've had for 150 it years. It will be, but it'll be a very di- <laughs> yeah. it may mean the death of the Labour Party too. Yeah, maybe. Well, with the Tories in Labour in flux, smaller parties are coming together and have announced plans for a Remain alliance in 60 seats where the Lib Dems, Plaid and Greens will unite behind one candidate. Uh, it could be a powerful force with even the likes of Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab at risk. Let's have a listen to Joe Swinson explain why Labour aren't included. Labour didn't want to engage in this process and perhaps the clue is in the name. This is Unite to Remain. And Labour, by their own admission, is not a Remain party. We've got shadow cabinet members talking about how they would campaign to leave the EU and Jeremy Corbyn can't give a straight answer to the question of whether he is Remain or Leave. So that's why I think Labour have uh, refused to engage in Unite to Remain and uh, you know we as Liberal Democrats have worked constructively with the Greens and Plaid Cymru who have been happy to, to have those conversations. Uh, Paul, who's this alliance going to hurt and how damaging could it be? I don't know. My gut instinct is that when, whenever a Lib Dem stands in, in, say, in cities of London, Westminster, like Chukarumuna, or say, like Luciana Berger um, in Finchley, 
my instinct is to say they'll split the opposition vote and they'll let the Conservative win. And similarly in Kensington, that's my instinct. But, you know, it's so unpredictable. Maybe these MRP, MRP polls are right. And these are the, you know, the, the detailed data, the focal data and people like Hope Not Hate have been running these things. And thousands and thousands of inputs. Maybe the science is right and the data's caught up and actually... You know, in places that we wouldn't think of, like Heidi Allen's seat, that the Lib Dems really are very close behind in what used to be a rock-solid Tory seat. So um, it's so hard to call. And it, that, to me, that would be one of the most fascinating things come election night, have this, has this MRP model actually worked? Is it has been quite effective? Um, and if so, well, then things could look quite different for Lib Dems. Yeah, Laura, let's say this is successful and we have a hung parliament and Boris Johnson doesn't have a majority... His only way to get a Brexit deal through, it would seem, would be to compromise with some Remainers. Can you see him doing that by offering maybe a second referendum or or something like that? Gosh, um, (laughs) there's a question. Just a small question. Quite hypothetical. Yeah, that is very hypothetical. Well, um, you'd like to see a second referendum, wouldn't you, Laura? um, Well, the answer to that is actually no, Paul. um, Which I know is maybe confusing for someone who uh, did work on Britain Stronger in Europe campaign. But um, I do actually believe that, um, you know, fundamentally we should try and get um, Brexit done sensibly and with a deal. And actually, it's one of the things that the Conservative Party are also, you know, it's part of their messaging. It's, um, you know, if you actually want to unleash potential, and this comes back to spending on infrastructure and making the investments that the country need and have, you know, arguably (laughs) people have been calling for for years before the distraction of Brexit, um, then Get, you need to get Brexit done and focus on it because if there is going to be another referendum, that is going to distract from all of that. And I mean, just on Scotland as well, actually, in the union, the argument they're giving is actually there could well then end up being two referendums. You know, it's not just the European Union, um, but also Scotland. And, uh, you know, they're saying we, we want to have 2020 be the focus of the people and not the politicians and politics um, and not waste that time. So, yeah, I'm. I, it, it, to come back to your original question, Arch, yeah, I mean, could Boris that is such a hypothetical yeah. and I, I don't know. I mean, it, we have to also see to like even what candidates get selected. I mean, as much as Labour Party are going to be looking different in, uh, uh, you know, by Christmas, same goes for Conservatives. Mm. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, uh, how worried should Labour be about this Remain Alliance? Well, a bit, I think, because there's a... I mean, my friend Ben Bradshaw, who's about the most pro-European pro European Labour MP, seems to be facing a Remain alliance against him. So if the, the logic of the Remain alliance is to fight the cause against Brexit, there's, there's weird. That's Same with Winchester Indeed. and Steve Bryan, Indeed. who yeah, right. lost, yeah. lost the, the whip. There are some choices yeah. about where they're fighting. I mean, personally, mm-hmm. I think it's a good thing. I think in a first-past-the-post system, it's good for smaller parties to be... It's clear with the electorate that they're having a pact with a cause in mind. I think that is a good thing. And actually, I think probably the most important thing is this is a precedent for the future because of the Progressive Alliance last time, basically, it was all talk and no trousers. And this time, it's actually happening even in a small way. But I think the logic of doing it in some seats where Labour have pro, very, very anti-Brexit, pro-European candidates is a bit odd. I don't quite understand what's going on there. Well, I think I think Canterbury, isn't it? I mean, Rosie Duffy. Is that right? Is it Neil, Neil Coyle as well? Really, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's not the Remain Alliance there, but yeah. she's facing a very strong Lib Dem challenge. Can we just reminisce for a moment? Wasn't there like a short period of time where the Remain and Brexiteer labels 
weren't being used. <laughs> Wasn't that, that was a lovely time? No, it's, it's a long time <laughs> yeah. ago now. <laughs> but yeah. we've come back oh, we to all of that now. Yeah. But you know what? It's a good point, Laura, because actually one thing that has changed, and I was talking to an MP from Kent um, yesterday um, who said, and a Tory, who said... Um, you know, I think the reason that Rosie Duffield will lose in Canterbury is, yes, because the Lib Dems are standing. But the reason that Lib Dems might be successful in a university town like that is that students have forgotten about tuition fees. It's not an issue anymore. Mm, it's a different cohort, point one. It's not in the news anymore. People have got over their horror of the betrayal of Nick Clegg. And they're in a brand new territory. And it's quite interesting how politics can I, become I, amnesiac. I don't, well, this is why it's quite hard to make any predictions based on 2017 election, right? Because I mean, yeah. the Dems were just like, no one was talking about them. It, you know, they were totally irrelevant, and uh, their campaign strategy is, you know, as much as most, you know, disagree with it. But, like it has put them on on the map, um, and so you know, it's it's yeah. I'll leave it to the uh, experts who actually know how to I, predict I, these I guess things. I disagree but. with you on the, on the young. I think young people vote for Corbyn because of values, not because of a bribe on tuition fees. But anyway, that's. Uh, I think the interesting thing is if this Remain Alliance signals to voters in a constituency, you should vote tactically whether people might hear that but not necessarily follow the cue of the Remain Alliance by voting for one of their people. So it could be that people are more... If, if you want to stop the Conservative getting in because you want to stop Brexit, then vote for whoever's most likely to beat the Tory, which Corbyn benefited from hugely, might be perversely, in 2017. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, and I think it could be that if just putting a sort of flashing light above the vote tactical instruction may not have the effect the Remain Alliance want in every seat, actually. I'd love to know how much voters really, really do vote tactically. Mm. I'd love to know mm. some proper research on it. Because I remember, Stuart and I, in, in, the, in the 1980s, I remember seeing... A, a, when I was an a, infant. A, a P, P, Peter Kellner, um, I remember telling me, 1987, Thatcher's, you know, another election, and Peter Kellner patronising me in some session with students, saying, <laughs> this will be the tactical election. This will be the tactical voting election. I said, what evidence have you got for that? It will be, believe me. And SDP, Lib Dem Alliance, you know, what happened? It got trounced, absolutely trounced by Thatcher in 1987. So, you know, it's been going around for a long time. Does tactical voting Anecdotally, I've definitely heard more friends and family sort of like talk about it. Really? That's interesting. Yeah, but that's, yeah, but anecdotally, so... They've got websites now, like Swap My Vote and stuff, and people yeah, do yeah, tend to Yeah, but how many them. people really go on a website? I mean, how many of the mainstream public who aren't that engaged with politics are going to be going on a tactical voting website? I don't know. And uh, well, don't forget... you've got to pick them wisely, don't you? And uh, what Stuart said about, <laughs> you know, young people identifying with Labour values, Corbyn's values, is really important because... Ultimately, it does come down to values. You go in that that ballot box and you say, well, do I identify with that party? And I think that might matter more than anything else in terms of tactical uh, gaming. In some cases, obviously, it's obvious. If you're in a Lib Dem Dem Tory seat and you're a Labour supporter and you think it's a no-brainer, maybe. But don't forget, in 2015, why did Cameron win? Why did Cameron beat Ed Miliband and and, and, and Stuart's, you know... campaign at the time. Why? Because in Lib Dem marginals, Labour voters were so annoyed with the Lib Dem uh, Labour voters were were so annoyed with the Lib Dems that the the Lib Dem vote went through the floor. Mm -hmm. In places like Kingston, all the southwest, you know, people said, right, I'm identifying with my values. It's the Labour Party. I hate these people. I'm not going to vote for them. And they allowed the Tories to win. Mm-hmm. Now, everyone forgets that bit of the equation when you're talking about um, when Labour talks about the Lib Dem voters betraying Labour and letting the Tories in. 
will Labour voters let the Tories in in 2015? Yeah, interesting. It's a good time to move on to the quiz, uh, which this week is all about political gaffes. So just chime in with the answer. I'm sure you'll be good at this. No, no, you'll be fine. It's it's good. It's all fun. Um, Can we we, we join forces, Laura and I, and do it together? Yeah. Uh, No, that's not right. Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's only three questions. Come on, we'll do it quickly. Uh, First question. Winston Churchill famously gaffed during the post-war election of 1945, but how? I know the answer to this one, I think. Go on. Go ahead. He did a radio broadcast in which he said that if you elected a Labour government, it would be like bringing in the Gestapo. Correct. One point for Stuart. Very good. He oh, said he's still a team, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> to make it clear, that was definitely a Labour answer. Yeah. <laughs> there answer. you go, false promises. <laughs> yeah, he suggested some sort of Gestapo would be required to implement Labour policies. Um, and he regretted it ever, by the way, ever at, since, didn't he? Atlee's response, I think the next day on radio, is one of the great sorrow, not anger responses. Yeah. It's really worth everyone listening, whether you're Labour, Tory or not. None yeah. of oh, that. I, I'm not fantastic. angry, I'm just disappointed. One yeah, of those. exactly. Right, the great test. And Churchill was, re- was really shamefaced after it. <laughs> After Atlee's yeah. response, yeah. Uh, right, second question. Which Tory in 2001 was ordered to go into hiding by his own party and why? Oliver Letwin. Oh, yes, correct. Was a bloodhound and Gordon Brown uh, or oversaw an actual bloodhound at a press conference. I remember it really well. Uh, and, yeah, <laughs> I remember that too. Absolutely true. <laughs> Can you explain that? Yeah, because we, we, need, we needed a Sherlock Holmes to try and find out where Oliver was. Ah, uh, okay, was the yeah. Labour Party's line and it had a real bloodhound at an event. Yeah. Yeah, I remember. Go- no, never mind. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, there yeah. may have been an incident when someone tried to explain to Gordon the logic of this, which might be, which might have been amusing, but who would know? <laughs> but he declared, at one, <laughs> he declared at one point, free the Dorset won." Basically, Oliver Letwin had been briefing the press that the Tories were going to cut taxes by twenty billion, which was far more than the eight billion promised by William Hague. But I uh, also remember. I know, I don't want to lengthen it, but I do remember Katy Perry was a young press officer at the time, and she was told by her boss, "Get." Fucking Oliver Letwin out of London now. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't care how you do it, get him out now. I'm not going to name the person who was talking about that. And said, get him out now. And so she basically saw Oliver Letwin, gave him a 20 quid note, got him in a taxi, got him to Paddington, got him out on the next Amazing. train, and then they hid him in a safe house. It wasn't his own house. <laughs> really? So Seriously? Labour did not find him where it was. And Stuart, you guys produced a wanted poster, didn't you? What, what's yeah, right, I, was just about, I just started working for all the time. I remember the wanted poster, yeah, that was brilliant. <laughs> Time to be in politics. <laughs> Simpler go. days in a way. Yeah. Uh, last one. What did Andy Burnham say was his favourite biscuit in a and a with Mumsnet in 2015? Oh, gosh. Well, that's definitely one for you, I think. Was it? Did it have well, gravy on it? It must have had biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you trying to insinuate? You're not. It should be me, not you. Oh, I do. When you say it, I'm gonna know. I'm gonna know it when you say it. But um, gosh, was it? A, was it? A, it's it's got to be. He's Bourbon. A work, was Bourbon. it? Working class digestive. He's got. With gravy on it. That one with no chocolate on it. Always doesn't he? Balls from Rochdale. Chips and gravy. Saying that kind of thing. It's not a jammy dodger, I don't know. Go no, on. no, it was beer and chips and gravy. I know, it does oh, have gravy. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. It's just gravy on its own. So actually, right? oh, you know. uh, beer and chips and gravy. Yeah. What's your favourite biscuit? Beer and chips and gravy. Oh, I'm good. northern. Bang, bang, bang. It's a bit like Rory and favourite <laughs> pub being Pret. Bless Andy Burnham. <laughs> yes. That was good, wasn't it? Uh, bless Andy Burnham and Rory Stewart. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so you can catch us every Thursday. And get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash war hyphen zone 
or follow the link in the episode notes. We'll just leave you with Boris Johnson being asked the naughtiest thing he's ever done. I know we're in election mode, but <laughs> go for it. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what. So if I make you this promise, if I can think, if I can think of, some, of some answer about the naughtiest thing I could, I've, I've ever done that is, that is uh, both uh, interesting and not terminally politically damaging, <laughs> I will try and provide it for you the next time we meet. OK, I'm going to hold you to that. Thank The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.